welcome to episode 21 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined for the first time by Mr. Adam Boys. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And speaking of which, uh, hello to Adam. Hello, how's it going, mate? Good. Like You have very much been one of our more active community members in sort of the past year, really. I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned some of your um, projects, particularly your Death Guard, on the podcast recently. Uh, Yeah, you have. I appreciate it. (laughs) It's always nice to get a bit of of, uh, feedback and stuff. Well, it's like definitely well-deserved, because, I mean, it's been brilliant watching you sort of develop and grow with this uh, Death Guard force you've taken from basically non-existence all the way through to us. You know, a substantial sized force now and um, really developing some cool techniques as you've gone through it all. Yeah, it's been kind of a bit of a crazy roller coaster with them, to be honest, because I didn't really intend on uh, ever having a Death Guard army. What does anyone ever intend on having any particular army? No, I don't think so. It's always a trap, isn't it? You get around to them all eventually. I swear, one of these days. I will maybe entertain the idea of a Space Marine army, but I just don't think it'll happen before the many other armies that I'd much rather have. Yeah, you'll get there eventually. Everyone has to have a Space Marine army, I think. (laughs) Maybe not me. Um, But yeah, so uh, welcome to the show for the first time. Thank you. Um, We've got a few different things we're going to go over today. So we are going to have uh, just a quick one or two announcements where going to get to uh, know yourself and your own sort of hobby experience a little bit sure. we're then going to have our pin station garrison um and actually one of the main reasons why you've joined me tonight is because the main topic of the episode is going to be death guard on crusade so it's the first of a new series of segments that i'm going to be doing on the show where we basically take a deep dive into some of the faction-specific Crusade rules that are coming out with the new codexes and army releases and all the rest of it. And as we've mentioned, you're very much one of our resident community Death Guard players. So it was um, a great opportunity to get you on. Sounds good. And then after that, we're actually going to have another of our mission focuses because it's been a while since we've had one. And they always prove popular, and I always think they're really fun to talk about because there's some really interesting and unusual things that are out there for narrative missions. And in particular, tonight we're going to be discussing the demise of a legend um, 
Echoes of War mission from Vigilus Ablaze. But in particular, it's because it has a mechanic in it that I think works really well with the ninth edition concept of Crusade and sort of leading to a, a climax or conclusion of a Crusade campaign. So that's going to be really fun to talk about. And then we will sort of finish up the episode with a couple of our community spotlights. And um, yeah, it should be it should be a good show. So um, just to start us off, uh, just a very quick announcement it is to say thank you to our new patron, Mr. Chris Swires. So Chris, wherever you are, thank you for listening. Thank you for enjoying the show and thank you for becoming a patron because it honestly, I know I say it at the start of every show, but it really does help, especially when coming up now, there's so many of these new publications that Games Workshop is going to be putting out that we're just really excited to review. And unfortunately, I don't as yet get preview copies. Like I'm hoping one day I'll hit that benchmark and Games Workshop can start sending me copies of Plague Purge or Warzone Charadon. But until then, it's one of the things that the Patreon money goes on supporting is being able to get us this content so we can really, you know, bring out the quite often hidden value of these like narrative play publications. So thank you again, Chris. Um, and <laughs> at this moment in time, uh, I've not managed to get in contact with you yet to get you an invite to our patrons only Facebook um, chat. So feel free to reach out. I have messaged you over at the Patreon, um, but also feel free to message me on Facebook or send me an email and we'll make sure we get you in there because it's one of the benefits you get from being in our Patreon that you get to come and bother me and all the other hosts of the show anytime you like. And uh, we get to talk about all the latest cool releases or thoughts on projects or anything that anyone has. It's just a a good time to have a a good one-to-one chat really with us all. So you can look forward to that as soon as you let me know where to find you on Facebook. However, one person I do know how to find is Mr. Adam Boys. So Adam, tell me, how long have you been playing 40k? Um, not very long, really. <laughs> I started in about May 2019, I think. Um, yeah, I've, I've, it's actually that, quite quite new to the hobby. Yeah, <laughs> I've collected when I was a kid, um, but I really I don't remember any games played uh, as such. I think it was more uh, more the hobbying. I got the. I think it was third edition box set with Eldar and Black Templars. I can't remember. Yes, the Dark Eldar and Templars box set. That was also my first edition and introduction to the game. Was it? And I just remember um, building up the space remains and using a majority of the Eldar as uh, damaged um, sort of cannon fodder on their bases. (laughs) See, I remember doing the complete opposite. I remember making uh, like terrain out the land speeder and stuff having as like a wreck because my glorious dark eldar had uh, decided to take them out <laughs> amazing <laughs> we could have had a good battle together then. um yeah so I, I remember having that as a kid and i remember i've got distinct memories of trying to paint the ultramarines and not letting the paint dry and end up with a mushy green when i was trying to do the shoulder pads <laughs> Um, maybe your death card tendencies were showing even back then yeah making green, green, green. yeah um, 
but yeah, that was about it for me, really. And I, I, I had it in my loft for years and years and years. And then um, January, a couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine invited me to go up to Warhammer World uh, to sort of just check it out and have a look around. Uh, it rekindled my sort of um, passion for Warhammer, I guess. Um, and a few months later, I found out that I had a friend uh, who I worked with who also collected. Um, so I thought it was a good time to jump straight back in. Uh, jumped in with both feet and uh, ended up quite quickly with over about 5,000 points of Ultramarines uh, for my nostalgia. <laughs> and that was what, within six months, 12 months? Um, about 12 months. I can't remember when. I, I've still got a few things left to paint, but yeah, it's just it's still creeping up now. Um, still impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and then with that, um, when I I decided I wanted to grab a few Primaris Marines, so I got the No No Fear box set. Um, and after I ran out of Ultramarines to paint, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll paint those cool Death Guard up because I might as well have got them. Um, then I decided I was going to increase that to 500 points just for little combat patrol games. And um, the snowball started rolling, and now I've got about 4,000 points of Death Guard <laughs> um, since the big summer, since this summer, I started painting them. Well, sorry, so last yeah. summer last year. So again, only about six, seven months or so. And yeah, yeah. you've already got, like you say, tons of a but just an impressive Death Guard um, collection, which you can see over in our Facebook group because you saw your post. Yeah. regularly in fact i even um, put up a instagram post today featuring some of the various things going on in our community group and some of the cool models that people have been working on yeah and, some really cool stuff uh, in there. The... oh what's there there was some really cool stuff in there there was but at the end of it as well is also the like army shot of your current completed death guard collection um because it just looked impressive so i, just, I had <laughs> Thank to you. Um, so then obviously it sounds like, you know, you have really dived back into the hobby in a big way in the last sort of two years in that time, what would you say has been your favorite part of the hobby? Um, learning to play the game. Like I've got quite a, I've built up a little group of friends, um, who all play. So it's been really good to be able to get in touch with obviously lockdown pending um it's been really good to like just spend like a whole afternoon with my friends like chatting rubbish and playing warhammer it it is a game that has a really strong social side to it isn't it Definitely. i mean like you say it's a shame that we're currently living in the times of covid and it, it has certainly warped that aspect of the hobby right now but hopefully it will not be too long before we can get back to it you know, safely and responsibly, but like, yeah, like it, I think it's one of the things that draws me into it more so than any anything I've sort of like played or dabbled in in the past, be it various video games or card games or whatever. It's just it really does have a real social dynamic to it that I don't think you quite get with any other hobby. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's like just I don't know. It seems easier to visualize the epic moments when you're rolling dice and. Uh trying to do something and it just epically fails or you manage to just get every, all the pieces to fall into place and yeah it's just yeah it's a lot of fun and i think i love how much of it is 
like shared experience and knowledge and almost like how much you'll find you have in common with someone who you might not have otherwise ever met or talked about anything. And if you realize that you both Warhammer players, you'll find common ground immediately. Like, yeah, definitely. Even like, if it's a rivalry, you've still got something to talk about. Yeah, I like, I'm sure chances are that if I met a brand new Warhammer player and I went over and spoke to them, they'd probably be able to make some joke about, you know, Dark Angels being traitors and we both have a laugh about it. Yeah, or I get always just, um, whenever I go to my local gaming store, someone I don't know always comes up and ribs me for having Ultramarines. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Cool. Um, So then you've sort of told us a little bit how you've rediscovered um, the joy of the hobby itself, but um, how did you discover... Uh, the podcast and the show as a whole i was um searching around my i can't remember which podcast app it was now but i was searching around on my podcast app for narrative content to listen to whilst i was working and you guys popped up one one of the few i was gonna say like did much else pop up because i find that that is often the case we are sort of cornering the market a little bit on like deep diving into narrative content there are there are some good shows out there that have narrative um, coverage as well I, I will say you know masters of the forge um, is a good one um and i've been really enjoying 40k badcast who've been recently doing more coverage on so like crusade okay i haven't yeah. checked those out yet i'd love to have a look for them <laughs> that like they are they are good shows i enjoy them both but yeah like i've said it before one of the reasons why i created this show was because I felt just this sort of stuff wasn't being talked about enough and there wasn't enough content out there. So I decided to make some. So that's good. good I'm glad you. that you found it by that way that you kind of represent what was the goal of creating the show. Someone who was out there looking for this sort of thing and found it. So yeah, good. there's definitely people out there looking for it, I think. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I feel it's coming through more and more now. Um, I mean, I mentioned in the last episode, we just crossed 8,000 lifetime downloads and it is just continuing to accelerate so it's yeah. great to see and i'm glad that more and more people are finding the show and enjoying it including yourself yes awesome so now we've got to know you a little bit how about we jump over to the paint station garrison and you can tell us all about the current things you're working on although i'm sure it's probably another five thousand point army that you'll have done <laughs> in the time So we will be back in a second, guys. Paint Station Garrison. And we're back, guys. And if everything has worked out correctly and future me doing the editing has worked, (laughs) done his job, you should have just heard the brand new little intro jingle to um, the paint station garrison. (laughs) So I hope you all enjoyed that. So Adam, tell us what is currently on your paint station garrison or possibly in your case, paint station fortress. I don't know. (laughs) I feel you quite often have more than a garrison going on. You have to make a new word for me. Um, (laughs) At the moment, um, I have my first unit of Genius Steel Occult Neophyte hybrids to uh, paint. I'm about halfway through oh. painting my first unit of them now. 
So Gene Steeler Cult, that is going to be the next 5,000 plus point army, is it? Yeah. So you're probably going to have approximately 5,000 models to paint. I was going for a horde army, and then that way I can't paint too many points that I get to get my painting fix, I guess. <laughs> you must be the only person I know who has ever collected a horde army because they can paint too many minis. To slow me down. <laughs> yeah, to slow you down. <laughs> wow. Well, sure. <laughs> um, so how is that the first sort of like foray into Eugene Steelicle or have you already got a couple of hundred points already finished? No, I, that is my first foray. They, they're my first sort of tester models. I've got um, a couple of start collecting boxes and a few characters that I got for Christmas, which I've been sort of... Uh, they've been my. I've been waiting to paint off the rest of my death guard to get everything else painted up that I've sort of had in my to do list, and then now my that's all I've got left really. Which is possibly your favourite of the Gene Sealer Cult characters? Which one are you looking forward to painting the most? Because they've got a bunch of lovely oh, characters. Loads of them. Um, so the one I'm actually going to, I'm really excited for. I haven't actually got it yet. It's on its way. I've bought the, there's a model in War Games exclusive, um, which is a sort of Primus sort of proxy. And I don't know if you ever played StarCraft, but it's a model of Carrigan from StarCraft. I'm not deeply familiar with the lore of StarCraft, but I have rec- I do recognize the name. Yeah, essentially she's a psycho unit that um, got... Um, betrayed and overrun by the faction the Zerg, which are basically Tyranids. So she yeah. got infected and it's just going to be a really cool sort of fluffy Primus unit for me. And I'm really looking forward to painting them up. Awesome. Um, what are you sort of, what are you planning to have in your, your cult as a whole? Are you going for horde of bugs or horde of humans or a bit of everything? I'm not 100% sure yet. I'm quite leaning towards some Brood Brothers. I like the idea of being able to have some... If I don't make them too genius de culty, I could run them as a little patrol of Astro Militarum as well. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure yet. At the moment, I don't have anything other than Cult and a, uh, a few gene stealers that I've picked up. And um, what colour scheme are you going for then? It's like a dark... Dark sort of um, grim darky sort of scheme with purples and blacks and greys with some OSL because they've all got a sort of flashlight over their shoulder. So yeah. it's like lighting up the side of their head yellow. I'm sure you'll OSL see some pictures soon. Like, I was going to say, you do OSL on like every single cultist. <laughs> I'm a sucker for punishment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair to you. I mean, in all honesty, I feel like I probably would do the same, but then that's why I'm not currently collecting a Gene Steeler Cult Army. <laughs> um, however, what I have been doing is I've nearly finished off my latest little round of um, Necromunda models from Ayesha Gang. So <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've recently just finished off all the um, Felinxes, so they're sort of like the little rat lizard um pets that they use these like exotic pets 
Um, but they they were fun to paint because they're just they're, they're quite diddy, but there's a lot of detail on them. Um, I've, I've mentioned before that you know I've been doing like different colored blended skin tones and fins and then um, fur patterns on them and just doing all four of them in you know a variety of colors came together really nicely and uh, i've posted some pictures of those and they were getting you know some really positive responses so that was good um, they look really cool like they're all different but they kind of fit with the theme of like the asher gang so they just look like yeah they look really cool yeah so the theory was that each of them has one of their primary colors is one of the core colors of the gang so like the main three colors are the um the turquoise green and the sort of deep purple that makes up the clothing on my ashes and then the yellow armor plates so mo so basically all the feelings have either some sort of turquoisey green purple or yellow as part of them yeah and to sort of tie them together as a pack even though they're all various different multicolors they each one of them has at least one color in common with the other yeah i think it works really well yeah so like i've got one that's um purple skin with green fins but then the next one i did had green skin with like yellow fins um but then the next one would have yellow skin with blue fins or something like that i, I can't remember what they were offhand but like there was always each one of them had at least one sort of color matching with one of the other pack members and it, I think it turned together nicely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then really the other sort of two main things that I'm working on at the moment is I'm still chugging away at this um, looted leaving rust. Um, it's it's getting there. Um, all the metallics are done now and, and the majority of the sort of other alternate armor plates are on it. So I'm doing my pass where I add some black armor plates here and there to just sort of break up the big areas of blue. Um, but then... They were thing that I just started doing as a little project because I wanted to sort of experiment with it was these um, lava bases, which is the first time I've created something like this. It's kind of planning to be a precursor for my corn demons because I do want to do all those on sort of like, you know, volcanic style bases. Um, so I thought well, was a good opportunity here to experiment with my method without needing to worry about getting a model on the base because I'm actually creating these nine um, like markers to use to represent the geothermal theater of war from um, Vigilist Defiant, Very which good. I've mentioned times on the podcast because it is one of my favorite theaters of war. I remember you mentioning it and that has been a, a, a plan in the back of my head for a long time to one play the theater of war in a game and also to create some lava bases it just seemed like such yeah. a cool idea so i've played with it before and just used um some sort of like uh, spare terminator size bases are they the um 40 mil bases i think yeah i think terminators are important yeah. yeah so using like you know a couple of um, spare 40 mil bases to represent the uh, like the nine points to represent the flowing front of the the lava fields that encroaches across the battlefield, and I always planned at some point to just make up four actual bases, just sculpted like a little lava base, um, and I can use those to represent those markers. So that's what I'm doing. I uh, I got myself some um, cork sheet. I got myself the citadel pack of skulls, um, and I've got some various texture paints that I'm using. 
because I'm actually trialing using one of the crackle paints okay. to represent the actual lava flow. So it looks like that sort of broken but half solidic surface on the top of the lava. That's so even though it yeah, so even though it's drying sort of like brown because it's um whichever one it is, Agrax Dune or whatever. Um, I'm then going to paint it, you know, in like bright oranges and reds to sort of do it up as a lava flow. And it's coming together. And, um, I think it's, it, I think it's coming out how I expected it to sort of thing in a good way. Like I had a plan of how I was going to do it. And so far, every step has kind of matched what I imagined it was going to look like. It's always nice when that comes together. <laughs> yeah. So they're not done yet, <laughs> so I'm hoping I, I don't encounter something that just doesn't work out uh, the way I expected it to, but who knows, even if it does, I might be able to, it might prove better. Yeah, I look forward to seeing them. Yeah. You've inspired so, um, me to make some of my own. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny how when I was looking for my community shout-outs for this episode, one of the things I've been seeing recently was uh, some basing tutorials by a certain account I follow on Instagram. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I realized it was you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, kind of jumped into the few tutorials recently. Yeah, and they look really good. Um, so I think what you've done about three or four now, one of them in particular showing how you've done like your plague desert bases for your death guard. Yeah. But, I was also particularly like blown away with how you actually created your urban like city base or like factory floor base or whatever because you literally made it out of like spare parts and recycling bin. I literally I honestly I've had so much just rubbish um hoarded. My wife's going to go spare if she finds it. Uh, I've just got a drawer full of stuff that was supposed to be recycled which I've uh, liberated. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, I, that that's the actual that's the basin scheme I've gone with for my gene sealer cult. So again, another very time consuming thing that's gonna slow me down is to make all of those individual bases for them. That that is the basing you're going with for your gene stealer cult. For my horde army, yes. <laughs> you are a madman. <laughs> a complete madman. Why why not just buy the Sector Imperialis bases or the Necromunda bases or the Sector Mechanicus bases. There's literally like three different kinds of sculpted urban bases you can get from Games Workshop. Not to mention all the ones that third party sellers make. I know, I know. I think <laughs> it's just, I think it's just something I enjoy doing. It's like the hobby side of things, especially at the moment that we can't play games. I've really jumped into the hobby side of things, and if I can make it myself, why pay for it? I think. Very true. Yeah, like I say, if if you feel like you know you're happy to commit the time and effort that's currently involved to create custom sculpted bases for an entire Gene Steeler core army, then <laughs> you go for it. Well, sure just, I've done ten. I don't know if I'm going to do more. <laughs> I don't know how how long it will be till I think. Oh, actually, those Necromunda bases do look really good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. He'll have to let me know how many you get through before. Um, your sanity breaks. Oh, well, I'll keep uh, the Facebook page updated with a tally. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I think that just about sort of covers everything that you and me are currently up to about hobby projects. So um, with that, I think we will jump over 
to our spotlight topic where we'll be discussing Death Guard on Crusade. Sounds good. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back, guys, this time for the first ever On Crusade segment. So today we're going to be talking about Death Guard On Crusade. So I'm sure by now many of you out there have probably seen, watched, listened, or just generally heard about all the new Death Guard stuff, new codex reviews, all the changes in the army and units and special rules and the way it's going to play and how it's going to shake up the meta and match play and so on. That's not what we're going to be talking about here today. If you want to do, if you want to find out all the fundamentals of what's new in the Death Guard, I'm sure a quick YouTube search for Death Guard Codex Review will find you plenty of videos talking about all of that. But the one thing that basically none of them ever touch on is the Crusade section of the new Death Guard book and all the cool new agendas, chaos boons, battle trades, requisitions, all the cool new things that the Death Guard are now capable of doing in Crusade. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And hopefully, moving forwards, I'm going to be getting um, guests on from the community, and we're going to be discussing probably most, if not all, of the future Codex releases and how those armies and factions behave in Crusade. So for today, I've decided to draft in Adam Boys, our local resident Death Guard player. So, hello. You're here today to tell us all about the wonderful, horrible things <laughs> that the Death Guard can do now in Crusade and all the brand new gifts of Nurgle they're going to be bringing with them. I can't wait. Exactly. So uh, first up, we're going to talk about some of the new agendas. Now, there are lots of these, like... All the things we're going to uh, talk about and cover, there's several agendas, several new battle traits, several new relics. We're going to just pick out some of our favorites, some of the really interesting ones. We're going to talk about those. So if you do want to go get the full bevy of rules for it all, you'll have to go pick up a copy of uh, Codex Death Guard. But trust us when we say there's lots of cool stuff in here and there's, we're not going to be shy of things to talk about on the show tonight. So, Adam, what is the first of the new Death Guard agendas you would like to talk about? Okay, the first one I thought was really fun and thematic uh, is Gene Seed Thief. It is a great prize for a plague surgeon to recover the Gene Seed from a fallen enemy space marine. By such actions, a warband can grow. Uh, so essentially what you need to do for this one 
is uh, give your uh, opponent a objective marker. Uh, they don't count as an objective for the game. This is just for your agenda. You give that to your opponent and they can put it on the board anywhere outside of their deployment zone. And what you need to do is uh, get your Plague Surgeon over to that objective and perform an action on it within three inches of the objective marker. And uh, if you're able to do that, you've stolen the enemy gene seed and your Plague Surgeon gains five experience points and your Crusade Force gains a bonus requisition point. That's cool. So that's a whole five experience for the Plague Surgeon. Yes. Yeah, that that's a lot. Like, other than some of these agendas that might provide XP equal to a tally and beyond one particular unit, basically just devastating <laughs> the entire opponent <laughs> by themselves, I don't think you ever typically get more than, like, two or maybe three experience at a push for no. those, like, rewards. So five is a lot. I mean... I'm pretty sure the first like experience rank is six experience, and by virtue of the fact that he'd have taken part in the battle, he would gain an additional experience. So, a plague it's a surgeon, jump. yeah, it is like it's an upgrade practically. Like a plague surgeon fresh out of the gate with no experience, if he completes this agenda, he'll get his first battle trait as a result. Yeah, you could. I suppose. I guess you could take this every game and just tank him up <laughs> be really cool well, I mean, the more the you take it the more your opponents are going to give you a hard time i think oh well, yeah because like if this objective marker is play if this unfortunate crimson fist or whatever <laughs> who's currently being like swabbed by nerglings um if he's one one side of the board and really you need your plague surgeon providing the feel no pain to all your marines on the other side then your opponent is making you make that decision because they, yeah. they couldn't care less if you collect the gene seed. They're right. busy trying to complete their own agendas. So maybe they'll let your plague surgeon just wander over there to uh, collect some poor souls' remains. Or well, maybe, maybe they'll try and collect it themselves and give you a really hard time. Well, I was going to say, maybe they'll use it to bait him out so they can snipe him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> can imagine some, some eliminators just very callously <laughs> scoping in on their fallen brother, just waiting <laughs> for when the plague surgeon uh, pops out to try and get him. Yeah, um, it's really cool. And, and that's not even to speak of the fact that you get a requisition point for this, which, yeah. I mean, those are the lifeblood of you know building your crusade force. There's whole missions where the victory reward for completing that crusade mission is a requisition point. So that's nothing to be sniffed at either. No, so it's quite a... Yeah, quite a reward. Probably a challenge, but quite a reward uh, in for doing it. However, some of these other agendas are also just quite as tasty, really, you know, with some real incentives to go for those. So I believe the next one we're going to talk about is the Poison the Well agenda. Um, so they, the Death Guard take great pleasure in infecting the landscape for its own sake. Keep a territorial contamination tally for each death guard infantry unit in your army uh, you send them all out you put them on terrain pieces and you perform an action and each time you perform an action with a unit you you add one to the territorial contamination tally at the end of the battle each unit gains a number of experience points equal to their territorial contamination tally and in addition to that if 
half or more of the pieces of, of sorry, if half or more of the pieces of area terrain on the battlefield have been contaminated, you also gain a virulence point. Ooh, I, I like that second clause about actually there's this incentive to try and infect the majority of the board because I was going to ask, are you able to infect a piece more than once, like a single terrain piece more than once? I don't think so. I think you need to be spreading out and taking taking the board, uh, which right. is what Death Guard want to do. Yeah, so he's spreading Grandfather Noble's gifts. That's cool. Absolutely. And if you do manage to get that, like 50% of the area terrain infected, with this effectively like raise the flags or scramble as equivalent, <laughs> um, you get virulence points, which is something new to the Death Guard, I believe. It is. Um, it relates to their, we'll talk about it later on, but it relates to the spreaders of disease uh, perk where you get to uh, create your own plague, which is really fun. Right, so that's interesting. So it's it's like another one of these additional resources, a bit like the investigation points in Pariah Nexus or the, the Xenotech um, points in like the Argavon campaign. That's yeah, cool. definitely. So it's, it's one of these ones where you'll accumulate these points that are specific to your Death Guard Crusades. And you can later on. Yeah, and expend them later on um, these diseases. That's cool. So there's a... See, that's not something you got with the previous agenda. So I guess like that Gene Seed V4 is, again, like you said, quite focused on the Plague Surgeon and getting the requisition point, whereas you're forfeiting the chance to get a virulence point of agendas like this. Yeah, I think apart from that one, I don't think I'm wrong. I think all of the other ones give you a virulence point. So that one, that first one definitely is buffing up the um, Plague Surgeon. Cool. Um, so then what is the last agenda we're going to mention? Uh, the last one I thought was really fun is turn their hope to rot. By destroying the enemy's most powerful warriors, vehicles, or heroes, the Death Guard can shatter the spirits of their foes. And uh, to do this, if you select this agenda, then after both your sides have finished deploying, one, select one enemy unit with the highest power rating in your opponent's army. At the end of the battle, if that unit has been destroyed by a Death Guard unit from your army, that Death Guard unit gains three experience points, and you gain one virulence point. Uh, just seems like really fun and thematic to break the spirits of your enemies as you're just walking around the board, poisoning all of the wells. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that. So it's you basically have to what, kill the, the biggest thing in the opponent's yeah. army, basically. Yeah. So I can imagine, like, if you're fighting ultramarines, that's probably mean you're gonna have to gun for Gulliman. Yes. Exactly. Um, anyone, you know, rocks out with Gazgul, Fracker, or the Silent King, and, you know, if you're able to put them down, then, yeah, I can imagine that is going to have a big impact on the morale. Break the army that they were leading. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that's cool. So that sort of it plays into the whole, like, death and despair aspect of the Death Guard, this, this sort of... And not terror tactics in the way that, say, like, the Night Lords use it, but terror isn't just... You know the sheer horror of what they are. Just you know, ruin these everything. These hulking, <laughs> monstrous, you know, marines. <laughs> That's cool. 
So yeah, so so that's just some of the agendas, and I said there's a bunch more, but you can already see where the the real theme and style of the Death Guard is being represented in their approach to Crusade. So next up, we're going to talk about the new Chaos Boons, which is interesting because I don't know how tied to Nurgle these are, but I won't be surprised if this is something that perhaps we see in future Chaos um, codexes, perhaps a bit more focused on whichever alignment is relevant to that codex. But are you going to tell? Do you want to tell us more about those? Uh, yeah. So these um, basically replace. Well, they didn't replace your battle honors. They are an addition. So if you wanted to pick a chaos boon rather than a battle honor, uh, you can decide to go for a chaos boon. And to get that, you uh, need to roll on a small table and roll a d thirty three, uh, which is roll a d3 for the tens and roll a d3 for the units and you consult the table and you okay. get one of these boons uh, a character can have up to three of those boons um, but if at any point you uh, roll a double then you your death guard character suffers chaos spawned them and needs <laughs> to be replaced with a spawn unit oh, that's cool that's i was cool. wondering yeah, I was wondering whether or not chaos stuff might possibly include spawndom. Like when I saw that you know space marines could be injured and interned in dreadnoughts, I was like, I bet there's going to be one for chaos where yeah. you get enough mutations, you become a spawn. It's so cool. So yeah, you, I That's guess uh, where you've mutated one of these boons, you've over mutated and just gone into a monstrosity, and you you replace that with your character with a chaos spawn, but they keep the same experience and providing they can keep the battle honors they keep those battle honors as well oh so they have an honorable chaos spawn yeah with, um, i guess any, any close combat buffs they get to keep those sort of things so that's really cool so it's still the same character in there somewhere and it's interesting then that this is basically an alternate option to your regular battle honors like if you're a chaos character you could choose to roll for these instead of whatever yes. regular upgrade. Yeah, you can choose to take these instead. They're not forced upon you. Um, oh, but they're cool. quite cool, and there's, there's some quite thematic things in there as well, which is cool. Uh, such as? Such as. Um, it's probably my favorite for Death Guard, just because it sounds gross and it's really tanky, would be Bloated Flesh. Um, add one to this model's wound characteristics. Um, they're all kind of um, similar to that. You, you've got one to sort of do AP, one for toughness. It's that sort of style of, uh, uh, sort of stat line increases, really. Uh, yeah, there's um, one called Hardened Body, which increases the toughness characteristics by one. And um, <laughs> Favoured by Nurgle. And, yeah, definitely. And Favoured by Nurgle. Uh, once per turn, you can re-roll a single hit, wound, or damage roll or saving roll made for this model. That's because it's practically like a baked-in commander re-roll, almost. Yeah, definitely. Most oh, they're all oh. pretty handy. I don't think there's any that I wouldn't want to get in there. Especially, especially the extra hand mutation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, out of interest, can demon princes take these or not? It doesn't say they can't. So you could technically have a demon prince who goes too oh, far. Oh, sorry, excluding demon units. Apologies. Oh, 
I was going to say, I was like, I thought you could have a demon prince who pushes his luck too far and reaches spawned them on the yeah. other side. To be fair, okay. some of these would be awful with a demon prince. <laughs> I think any more any more buffs to a demon prince is probably going to be pretty bad times for your opponents. <laughs> yeah, so your, your chaos boons are effectively for your mortal champions because yeah. they're attempting to attain demonhood. Yes. Fair enough. Um, so, in that case then, you say that Chaos Boons are now an option for taking instead of a battle trait. I believe, are there actually still some new battle traits in the book, but are these for, like, characters could take these if they wanted, or can they not? I think these are just for units. For infantry units and demon engines can also receive uh, battle traits. I think the Chaos Boons are specifically for characters by the looks of it. Right, so if you're a... I mean, so it's infantry units as opposed to something with the infantry keyword. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to uh, look. Into yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't say specifically infantry keyword, but it's just one for. I, I think it separates them because they're a bit more thematic. Um, one's I more guess. geared towards vehicle sort of side of things, and one's more geared geared to um, like infantry and. Yeah, so basically, if you're a Defcag character, you've probably got the choice of taking a boon from as either a chaos boon or a battle trait from the sort of standard crusade character tables. I believe, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so then we've got battle traits for infantry and demon engines, interestingly, actually, in the new codex. Yeah, it's nice to have them separated out, so... Um, so give us one example of a demon engine battle trait, then, that's now available. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier, I'll go for the spider limbs. Uh, spider limbs. Each time this unit makes a normal move, advances, or falls back, or it makes a charge move, until that move is finished, models in this unit can move horizontally through models and terrain features. They cannot finish a move on top of another model or its base. So basically, you can just ignore anything and just move straight through over the top of everything and just burst your spider legs out and crawl over everything. I've just got images now of like a defiler sort of like tiptoeing its way through intercessors <laughs> in order yeah. to just like bypass them. I've just got the image of the the a group of uh mythic blight haulers just kicking off their treads and crawling up <laughs> and just all crawling over the top of buildings. It doesn't oh, such a cool image. That's creepy. <laughs> Um, go on and give us another demon engine upgrade then as well. Uh, this one's kind of cool. Um, acidic, rev- it's a bit wordy, but acidic residue. After this unit has shot, select one enemy unit that has suffered one or more hits from ranged attacks made by any model in this unit this phase. Until the end of the phase, each time a friendly Death Guard model makes an attack against that unit uh, with a plague weapon, any unmodified hit rolls of six cause one additional hit, and a unit can only be a, sorry, a unit can only be selected for this ability once per phase. So it basically corrodes the enemy unit that you've been shooting at, and then any plague weapons you're shooting at it, and from then onwards, uh, cause additional hits and uh, more damage. I guess well, not actually more damage, but thematically more damage. That's cool. So, which so that Death Guard they don't have access to like the Forge Fiend or the Mauler Fiend, do they? No. 
but this could be really good on something like the um the blight hauler or the blight drones yeah i can see the mortar just shooting a big ball of death over the over the enemy lines into the big thing that they want to take down and then making it easier for the infantry to wound later down the line that sort of thing I've just, I've just got this speaks perfectly to something I saw on Instagram the other day where someone had modelled their um, plague mortar like it was in mid firing. Yes. So there was like, did you did you see it as well? Yeah. So it's yeah. like it's like the mortar shell, but it's about like an inch or two above the barrel of the mortar, and the thing connecting it is the sort of like. Glob of trail of trailing from the shell to the, from the mortar, and they've made it with like this sort of clear see-through resin. Um, it looked amazing. It's stuff. really made me want to upgrade my <laughs> my uh, plague burst quarters now. <laughs> but like acidic residue just reminds me of that so much. I can just imagine this thing globbing its way onto the enemy unit. Like even if it just crushes a couple of the guys, those in the splash of the light zone. And yeah. just be covered in this horrible, diseased, corrosive acid stuff. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I don't know. It's just so cool. It's it's all corroded their armor, and then the next shots that come in, the next volley of bolter shots or the next volley of shots uh, cause more damage because of that. It's just a really cool idea. Well, maybe the maybe there are some slightly less disgusting upgrades for the infantry, but I doubt <laughs> it. Yes, you'd be right. (laughs) Um, So there's one here called Liquid Form. And each time this unit is declared, sorry, each time this unit declares a charge against the enemy unit, that unit cannot hold steady or set to defend. So I'm guessing they're they're not able to handle it as well. Yeah, so, so they are able to fire Overwatch if they then use the stratagem to do so. Yes. It's one of the sort of options, yeah. So it basically means they can't take advantage of the defensive terrain they're in. Yeah, they can't get the plus, plus one to Overwatch or plus one to attack, was it? Like, it's been a while since I read the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. So, yeah. So, it's, you, obviously, you still get to either do the Overwatch or you still get to fight you, obviously. But you're not yeah. going to get the benefit to the, bonus, the bonuses, the bonuses because you you're just so slippery. <laughs> yep. All you're doing is stabbing goo. Yeah. <laughs> Lush. Uh, and the last one I wanted to talk about for the infantry was bone horns. Each time this unit fights. Uh, sorry, each time this unit finishes a charge move, select one enemy unit within engagement range and roll one d6 for each model in that unit that is in with sorry, that is within engagement range of that enemy unit. For every five plus, the unit suffers one mortal wound. So was that when these are when you were charging? This is when you're sorry, yes. So this is when you're charging in. Every yeah. roll a dice for every model in the unit that you're the you basically makes into base to base. Yeah. So it, it's essentially sort of like Hammer of Wrath, it's the whole dealing multiple wounds on charging effect. That sort of thing. But that could be for So that could just be for any infantry unit that's earned the XP. Yeah, so I'm guessing if I charge the unit of twenty orc boys, I get to roll twenty dice and, and see if I uh, roll fives. Probably take out a fair few of them. Oh wait, so 
so is it you roll a dice for every one of the enemy units or every one of the enemy models or every one of yours? Let me read it again, sorry. Each time this unit finishes a charge move, select one enemy unit within engagement range and roll 1d6 for every model in this unit within engagement range of the enemy units. No, sorry, it's my unit. Then. Yeah, so it's so it's for every one of your models that's within half an inch of the enemy. So it's basically every one of your models that makes it into base-to-base -base with the enemy unit. That makes sense as well, because it's their big yeah. horns hitting your enemy models, not... Yes, the other way around. Because you, you're charging in. You're saying, you, it's basically like horns from Blood Bowl. Like you, yeah. you're getting a, a bonus on the charge because you, you're goring them. Um, so what I was going to ask is, can Poxwalkers gain experience, or are they? Do they have a rule that might exempt them from this, or not? Um, I'm going to go with I don't know. I haven't seen anything to say that they can't. It doesn't specifically was, say anywhere yeah. in this battle traits. Um, I, I know obviously the general crusade rules prevent swarms from gaining experience, but I know that sometimes in instances like this, units which are narratively considered like mindless or brain dead or whatever are sometimes exempt from gaining experience equivalents. But like, if you could give you bone horns as a battle trait to a horde of poxwalkers, which to be yeah, honest, horrible. kind of are already covered in a lot of bony protrusions and spikes, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I could see that being quite a cool upgrade for some some poxwalkers. It doesn't specifically say, but it would be very cool if they can. I know they they can't do actions generally, but there is one action that they are able to do. So maybe there would be a if there was a the caveat, it probably would say that here. Yeah, I imagine it would have been there. Like that's the sort of thing I'm on about. Like so, like say they've got a rule that says they're not so good at actions. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they might have had a rule that says they were not so good at learning. <laughs> <laughs> But apparently not. Can't keep a good poxwalker down. No. So then, we've talked about some of these new upgrades, we've talked about some of these new agendas, and all of that was leading to the new thing that is the sort of real unique thing for Death Guard on Crusade, and that is the new Spreaders of Disease rules. So would you care to explain this horrible, horrible thing and how it works? I think... This is my favorite part. <laughs> um, so I won't go into the ins and outs of um, how contagions work. I'm sure everyone's seen it by now. But if you haven't, long story short is um, you. there are now contagions within the Death Guard army and throughout the battlefield. The It's an aura ability that every unit in the um, Codex has the ability to have and it extends by a few inches each battle round. Uh, the Spreaders of Disease um, is a... You can give your Death Guard Warlord a Contagion ability, and it is a disease that you create throughout your Crusade, and it sort of evolves throughout your Crusade by spending the virulence points that we get from doing the Crusade actions, which I think is so cool. That's cool. So it's basically like an augmented version of the minus toughness aura that your Death Guard units have. Yeah. So with the Plague Companies, the you're able to give a Warlord trait um, to one of your characters, which is an, also an aura of they do various things. Uh, this is a, another one of those, essentially. You get to give it to... So when mustering your army, 
you can upgrade a Death Guard Warlord by making them a Plague Carrier of your army's Plague. If you do so, they gain the Plague Carrier keyword. And um, in the requisitions, you can give this Plague. It's the same Plague, you don't have a different Plague, but you give your army's Plague to different characters as well, up to three more characters if you would like to. I was going to say, so, is, so do you kind of get do you get one for free, as it were, for your warlord? For your warlord, yeah. And then, yeah, you can and add then to you can, so one of the new requisitions is you can add two additional characters to have this enhanced version of the contagion. Yes. So they still have everyone still gets the minus one toughness contagion, but these are enhancements on top of the original contagion. Mm-hmm. And so these characters with enhanced versions, they still apply the minus one toughness. In I addition. think so. Yep. Yeah. I think it's a okay, cool. So how exactly are their contagions advanced? Um, so when you're mustering your crusade force, you'll create the initial plague by um, three elements, and you roll dice to determine the three elements of the plague. You've got vectors, which is essentially how the plague is spread. Infections, mm-hmm. which is how what the plague does to your enemy units. And terminus, which is how the um, enemy recovers from the plague. Sort of how it goes, like what happens to it. Mm-hmm. And um, you name your plague by linking those three elements together to to call your plague what it is, which is kind of cool. Um, so I've just gone through, I've read read through and just sort of picked out some cool ones to make some cool sort of plagues uh, here. Um, so um, if you rolled a five, your plague would be a hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging vector. And at the end of your movement phase, you roll 1d6 for every enemy unit within a few, three inches of the plague character, plague carrier models from your army. And on a 4+, plus, that enemy unit is now contaminated. On a 4+, plus, you say? On a 4+. Plus. So that's any enemy units that are within three inches of these special characters with the enhanced version? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and then the infection was debilitating uh, so each time a ranged attack is made for a model in in a contaminated unit sorry each time a ranged attack is made by a model in this contaminated unit when selecting a target for their attack the model cannot select an enemy unit that is more than half range so it cuts the whole range of that enemy unit's weapons in half oh that's cool yeah which so yeah <laughs> kind I of annoying that. i think for yeah, your... i can see that being really good for like some deep striking characters like terminator lord or something because if he's dropped in like in the middle of the enemy lines um and then he spreads this reduced range output to the enemy units then that's reducing their ability to fire on the rest of your force that's cool. Yeah, and it could, yeah, if you drop them back in the enemy lines, and that could potentially affect four or five units, depending on how good you roll. could be really frustrating. <laughs> and, uh, then... and the terminus, um, I've gone for ulcers. Um, 
So at the end of your opponent's turn, roll 1d6 for each contaminated enemy unit. On a 1 to 3, you can select one enemy unit within sixes, six inches of that contaminated unit to also become contaminated. On a 4 to 6, that unit is no longer contaminated. So it could spread like a plague throughout the enemy lines. That's cool. So you've now got some hemorrhaging, deliberating ulcers just spreading across enemy units. Um, and Okay, so... And that could keep... I, I guess that Terminator Lord could now leave and that could just keep spreading through the ranks. So I, I know that in later terms of the games, it probably wouldn't be as relevant because the aura is extended to nine inches, but if a unit becomes infected by the ulcers, which, say, is within six inches of the affected enemy unit and that is now say about 10 inches away from the nearest death guard model uh, is the newly affected unit that it's spread to would they be considered at minus one toughness yeah so i think this one this actual aura um depending on the vector to start with it sticks to that three inch range so that doesn't extend and the ulcers the six inches of contaminating each unit but yeah if they were in um, if they were within range of the minus one toughness aura, uh, they'd still get the minus one toughness as well on top of. Uh, yeah, but what, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is uh, because the ulcers could say pass down the rear of the enemy ranks, you could have some enemy units that are affected by this disease because of the ulcer spreading, and you end up with an enemy unit that's become hemorrhaged that isn't actually within three seven or nine inches or whatever of any death guard units at the time so it's curious to know whether or not they would also be considered to be within the contagion range because they've kind of picked up the contagion it's like a so it's like a separate contagion right so, so, that, so every, yeah everyone in the army gets the minus one toughness contagion and then this is a separate extra contagion for your warlord yeah so you could end around. up yeah you could end up in a position where you know your termi lord has deep striked in in front of a bunch of conscripts um and behind the conscripts there's a heavy weapon team now the conscripts are a minus one toughness and they become hemorrhaged because they're all the four plus and then through the ulcers they end up passing on the contagion to the heavy weapon team behind them yep the weapon team is not within three inches, say, at this stage of the Termilord, so they're not at minus one toughness. But they are at half range because they're suffering from the effects of the deliberating disease. Yes. That's interesting. So you, you're literally spreading all different kinds of deliberating effects across yeah, the Yeah, it's, it's horrible. There's, there's, yeah. <laughs> Right, so tell us about your second disease you've created, which I believe, by the sounds of it here, is some festering, ravaging cysts. Yes. Sounds lovely. Tell me about it. Doesn't it just? Uh, so the festering uh, element is how we're going to give our plague. Um, any number of plague character models from your army can each perform the following action as described in the Warhammer 40,000 core rulebook. Foul corruption action. At the start of your movement phase, a plague carrier model uh, can start to perform this action. 
it is completed at the end of your movement phase when the sorry at the end of your movement phase when the action is complete each enemy unit within the six inches of this model is contaminated just automatic no roll just complete the action and infect everyone within six yeah and it's at the start of your movement phase so basically you just don't you you need to be there before you get there and then you don't move for that movement phase and right. anything that's already around you yeah so once you're already in the trust uh, that's that's quite the uh, splash zone <laughs> Six inches is quite, yeah. Six inch radius is quite big. Yeah, six inch radius is quite an area of effect. Yes. On a big base, like, say, a Nurgle Termilord. And then right. they can go on to charge afterwards and do their horrible stuff that they do. I'm so sure. once, you, once you've stood there and infected everyone with your festering disease, how does it ravage them? So it ravages them by when a unit becomes contaminated, it suffers D3 mortal wounds. And at the start of your command phase, each contaminated unit suffers one mortal wound. So initially, they'll have three D three mortal wounds, and if they don't, if they're unable to uninfect themselves, each command phase after that, they suffer one more mortal wound. So it's smiting, <laughs> and then persistent more wound, more wound, more wound. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right. So for those who are not ravaged, how does this terminate? <laughs> so the terminus, I've gone with cysts. Uh, so any number of contaminated units can each perform the following actions as described in the Warhammer 40,000 core rulebook. Decontamination action. At the start of your movement phase, a contaminated unit can start to perform this action. The action is complete at the end of your movement phase. When the action is complete, roll 1d6. On a 2+, plus, the unit that performed this action is no longer contaminated. So I thought it'd be kind of frustrating to make them then do an action themselves to un decontaminate themselves and remove these uh, festering yeah. cysts. So it's like, okay, so 2+, plus, you can guarantee you're not going to continue to suffer the additional mortal wound. But... You're doing an action, which means you're not doing other actions. Yeah. So if units are trying to hold objectives, raise banners, deploy scramblers, do whatever, they can't do that without remaining contaminated. So they're going to have to take them all wound in order to do it. Very irritating, I think. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Especially when you've potentially blasted that out six inches to several units that might have to all do this. Yeah. So you said you spend virulence points to do this. So yes. So initially, you get to you roll your dice and you randomly create your um, your disease. Your disease uh, with your virulence points, you are able to spend them to re-roll. You pick an element of your disease and you re-roll the d6 to to change that element of the disease. So it's still, okay. it still it still stays random. Uh, it's like when a random you, mutation sort of thing, but you get to uh, upgrade it or tweak it as you go, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah, you, you can keep trying to spin that like cylinder of the slot machine, as it were, to yeah. eventually get the lineup of the three components that you're really looking for. But yeah, some of them are like there's there's a lot to go through, so I can't go through too much of it. But some of yeah, them, are, they, say it, they add up and make some really cool stuff. 
And so what is it? There's presumably about six options for each, six vectors, six, six vectors. Six, six of each. Terms. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, however many hundreds of combos, I assume that is. Um, Lots of fun. Yeah. So, and, I mean, as to say, that could that can be given with requisition points. You can give that plague to other disease car- t- carrying characters. Yeah. So you start with one. So it's almost a way of viewing this as a an extra aura ability. You know, yes, by is, spending yeah. requisitions, you can provide other car- your other death guard characters with this same aura, and then it's like this army wide stat line for that aura. Yeah. That's cool. So, um, what other requisition options are there that are new to the Death Guard? Um, so, yeah, kind of just went through the fact that you've got um, virulent, virulent adaptations. adaptations and the plague um, marked. The plague marked um, is you purchase this requisition at any time for your Crusade Force. And sorry, you've got to use a requisition point and a virulence point to buy this. And you select one Death Guard character from your Crusade Force, and they uh, gain the Plague character keyword, carrier keyword, sorry. So they become another yeah. uh, host of your Plague. Yeah, that makes sense, because basically it sounds like being a Plague carrier is essentially an additional Warlord trait. So, like, that's why it's one requisition, but because it's specifically the plague aura you're getting, that's why it needs to be a virulence point to do it. So, yeah, the longer you're crusading, the more plague carriers you'll have and the more refined your particular strain of disease will be. Yeah. That's cool. And um, the virulent adaptations is the ability to re-roll and change your yeah 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 cool so what then is the new deadly pathogens requisition um purchase this so the champion's weapon is imbued with one of nurgle's most foul diseases making it all the more infectious purchase this requisition when you add the following to your order of battle uh, and add to the following to the order of battle when following your crusade forces gains a rank. Um, a Death Guard character model, excluding named characters, or a unit of bubonic Astartes model that has the champion keyword. Uh, essentially, you upgrade their weapons. Uh, so is this the like? even fancier plague weapons basically yeah so when there is a table it's a bit like um how you upgrade your yeah uh, characters you can upgrade your um death guard characters or champions to have a upgraded weapon right okay so yeah Um, so this is something i have heard talked about on some of the other codex reviews and stuff because this is these are options that are there for like army list upgrades in matched play where you would pay yeah. points to upgrade to get this bonus. I believe it's yeah, like plus one strength to your plague weapon and then a unique special rule dependent on which particular fancy plague it's got. That's right. So stuff like yeah. upgraded the armor penetration by one. Yeah. So similar to these other examples where like you say, um, Master of Sanctity, Chief Apothecary, whatever, 
Um, I think like joining the inner circle and stuff in the upcoming Dark Angels Codex. Um, whereas if it's a single instance in a match play game, you just pay points for it because it's Crusade. You actually have to earn these upgrades and these um, developments of your character, and that is done through requisitions such as this Deadly Pathogens one. So I yeah. don't think you're able to just spend the points to get a pathogen for a crusade character. Instead, you spend a requisition and he gets it that way. That's right, yep. Yeah, cool. So tell me then, you've put on here that apparently there's a requisition called Demonhood. There is. Tell me about all that. Of course there is. Um, so in a similar way that you can, uh, if you roll doubles on your spawn, uh, sorry, doubles on your Chaos Boon and you get spawned them, if you manage to get enough requisition points and uh, you're able to give your Death Guard character three Chaos Boons, um, you can then spend a requisition point and um, ascend to Demonhood and replace your Death Guard character model with a Demon Prince model. Wow. Okay, cool. Um, so I assume they would keep their ranks and they would generate battle traits appropriate. Yeah, that's correct. The Demon Prince unit starts with the same number of experience points as the unit it replaced had gained and the appropriate number of battle honors. Does Uh, it keep Chaos Boons or not? uh, It keeps... It gains the appropriate number of battle honors, so I guess it can keep the Chaos Boons. Will you re-evolve? Well, oh, no, it wouldn't, would it? Because no. we said, all right, so it gains the same number of battle honors, which because previously it had ones that could not be taken by a demon, it would have to replace them with ones it could now take. Of course. So yeah. it would get free like character upgrades from the Crusade book, uh, from, like, from the core rules. And it can also... Um, it keeps the same warlord trait and relic, providing it could have them in the first place as well. So, is the is there anything else that makes it different to say just buying a demon prince for your roster in the first place, or is it just the fact that you would have a demon prince obviously who has now X amount of ranks of battle honors? I think it's the the latter. I think it's that you've yeah. you've it's the narrative, isn't it, that you've yeah gone it's through the, you've all gone that champion. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's re- like I say. I guess the same thing is true of a dreadnought for Space Marines. You can just buy a dreadnought for your Crusade list. Yeah, um, it's just that if you turn a character into a dreadnought, it has the same amount of battle on it straight away. So you get this experienced dreadnought added to your roster. So equally, you would get a very gifted Demon Prince because he's just earned his ascension. Yeah, I've always had it in my head ever since like the start of Crusade coming out in my Death Guard army that I really want my playcaster to be uh, performing like the um, psychic ritual action before yeah. I'm able to then... And then once he's managed to do that and the Chaos Lord is in the right place and got his three Chaos Boons, then I'll spend the requisition. But until that um, Psycho manages to do his psychic ritual, I'm not going to spend the command... the Requisition points. Yeah, that's a really that's a really cool idea to do it like that thematic way of holding off on it until you feel like you've even done a mission that feels appropriate. Yeah. 
Ace. Probably uh, right. myself in the long run, but it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so just to sort of round us out with Death Guard or Crusade, just give us a couple of examples of some of the new Crusade relics. Yeah, sure. There's um, there's not loads of relics, and um, some of them you need to have leveled up to a certain place before you can take them on as well. Um, but the first one I've got here is um, Billowing Censure. It's an aura. Uh, when a friendly Death Guard model is within nine inches of this model, uh, which, has, which has the aura, uh, that when that friendly model is destroyed, add two to the roll to see if it explodes. Oh, right. So it's more likely to make your no demons or vehicles or whatever explode. Yeah. And so, like, you know, take things out with them. Most of them are on sixes, but I'm pretty sure the light haulers and the drones are on fours already. So they're going to be popping all over the place. Cool. And then <laughs> um, Corrupted Emblem. Um, each time you purchase the Virulent Adaptations requisition, uh, if the bearer was part of your army in your most recent battle, you can subtract one. You Sorry, you can add or subtract one to the roll made to change your current plague so you can have a little bit more influence whether you're... Uh, Oh, that's really good. I guess you've yeah. got more control over tailoring your disease. Yeah, definitely. If you're going to lean into that element, which I'm sure everyone will do, it'd be good to be able to to make it exactly how you want it. Right, and then one last one to round us out for this uh, segment. Cool. Um, if your Death Guard character is of heroic rank, it can be given one of the following antiquity relics instead of ones presented in the Warhammer 40,000 core rulebook. And this one's the Orb of Decay. Uh, once per battle, the bearer can unleash this relic, and if it does, roll 1d6 for each enemy unit within 6 inches. On a 2 to 3, that enemy suffers one mortal wound. On a four to five, it suffers D three mortal wounds, and on a six, it suffers D six mortal wounds. Wow, so that's a big aura, like grenade almost of mortal it's big, wounds. It's a big bang. Yeah, I could see. I guess like a demon prince losing that, or again that pesky deep striking lord of contagion or similar. Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't say it's not a grenade. Or anything like that, it can just be done by the looks of it. Awesome. Just once per battle. <laughs> cool. Well, I think it's fair to say uh, the Death Guard have lots of disgusting new tricks that they can pull in Crusade, and um, I, I'm i not looking forward to being on the receiving end of them. <laughs> I really can't wait to use them. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I just think it's brilliant if this is the sort of calibre of customization and uniqueness that each of the factions are going to be bringing to their crusade forces i think it's going to feel similar to like when 8th edition first brought in faction stratagems in the codexes it's like you know here's your vanilla stratagems everyone's like oh these are cool these are great and then really getting into it with faction ones i think that's happening now with crusade in 9th edition here's your vanilla agendas requisitions relics and so on but just wait until you get your spreaders of disease you know system for your death guard i'm sure the more stuff that's coming out the more i'm sure all the other factions are just itching to get theirs like and to see i imagine like i can't imagine what the orcs is going to be like the orcs is just going to be madness isn't it (laughs) yeah i I cannot imagine what it's going to be like but i think it'd be 
everything I like there are a few things that are a little bit sort of generic but everything feels so fluffy in this and so thematic for the death guard it's going to feel like like I don't know it's going to throw me right into the narrative of the game as it's going to be so much fun and I think it should do that for everyone and that's why I've I really want to talk about this more for other factions going forward because I do not think there's enough coverage for this sort of stuff and like you know there's not enough people talking about it because it's brilliant so um, yes, thank you very much, Adam, for taking us through all of that. You're welcome. And um, we'll be back, guys, uh, in just a minute. Mission focus. And we are back, guys. So hopefully you really enjoyed the crusade content that we just covered there and i know that we had a great time talking about it didn't we adam yeah definitely can't wait to yeah. play um and yeah that that was death guard on crusade and i'm hoping that we'll be able to do more of that for the various upcoming releases and armies and we'll also no doubt end up being a backlog of ones to catch up on so um, I don't know if we'll get through literally every single codex for Crusade content, but I'd like to, you know, get through the majority of them and certainly, you know, some of the really interesting ones. Like I know at this point we know a little more about how the Dark Angels on Crusade uh, behave and their literal hunting for the fallen mechanic is really cool. It's very, very, very cool. It looks like um, Drakari might be next as well. Jakari, it looks like there might be a, a possibly a new Sisters Codex not far out, given the recent announcements yeah. and the new lawsuit that they're going to be um, presumably getting at some point some sort of new rules. Um, but yeah, however, whilst that was um, Death Guard on Crusade, this is Mission Focus. So previously we've kind of had Mission Focuses be... Um, quite often the main content of a show, but moving forwards, um, I kind of liken the idea of getting it in as a more um, compact segment, but one that we still really, you know, drill down into some um, really interesting scenarios that are out there. But the main reason being is that I've, <laughs> I've now got quite the roadmap of episode topics to sort of fill out as we go forward. So I don't... <laughs> I needed to find a new way to fit the mission focuses in because I still really enjoy doing them and I want to have more of them, but I don't think I've got space in the schedule at the moment to just have a full episode dedicated to mission focuses. So uh, instead, I'm hoping to try and fit them in more as um, a secondary segment into shows when it feels appropriate. I think it's a good thing to get in. Like, it, the, I didn't know about the, the Vigilus missions until you started doing like little sort of backgrounds on them and they're really... Like they've been really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how Vigilus is still a real source of some of these really cool missions, which is why I'm really looking forward to the Warzone Charadon um, expansion yeah. because that feels like it might be the next kind of Vigilus series style book, like more in line with what Vigilus was than say in line with the Psychic Awakening books. But that's yet to be seen. Um, but in either case, I'm sure there'll be some very cool scenarios in that. There's still some stuff in Pariah Nexus that'd be really cool to go over. There'll be more stuff in Plague Purge <laughs> and um, 
all sorts. So for tonight, we're going to be discussing the demise of a legend scenario from Vigilus Ablaze. Now, this is one of the Echoes of War missions. So it's one of the ones which is originally intended to be sort of like a historical recreation of a particular event. In this case, the sort of like climactic final battle of the Vigilus um, campaign where it was abandoned as a spoiler um, versus Panius Calgary in a sort of like, you know, duel to the death sort of thing. Um, but as with a lot of these Echoes of War missions, it doesn't actually rely too heavily on you using Ultramarines and Black Legion to make the scenario work. You can quite easily repurpose it for lots of other missions. I know um, ones we've talked about in the past, the Cleanse the Hull was supposed to be Space Wolves versus Orcs, but it could be any it could be any factions fighting on a, a spaceship. Um, Serpent's Lure was supposed to be Eldar versus Orcs. Um, so I, I do clearly have a soft spot for Orc scenarios, but this is not one of them. This is this is Space Marines versus Evil Space Marines. Classic. Um, but no, it's a good one. And one of the reasons why I wanted to discuss this particular mission is because if you take the concept of what it represents and you take the sort of core gimmick of this scenario and apply it to either other scenarios or just play this scenario wholesale with whichever armies you have, it makes for a brilliant conclusion to a crusade campaign. And the sort of the main reason for that is because it's all about this duel between opposing warlords. So after you've played, you know, three months plus or whatever of your Argavon campaign crusade or whatever crusade format you're playing, you can um, have these like final climatic battles. I think it'd be cool to see like a gaming club where everyone pairs off on the last night of the campaign and plays this same mission and everyone gets to find out how their various epic duels play out. Or if you've been playing with a particular friend and the two of you have just been playing a really in-depth narrative campaign between the pair of your forces, like between your two armies and your collections, this would just be such a cool way to really bring it all to a head and have your now grizzled, experienced, probably battle-scarred commanders fighting out. I mean, you could potentially... You could even have a Space Marine captain who started the campaign as a captain and ended it as a dreadnought, fighting a Chaos Lord who started as a Chaos Lord but ended as a Demon Prince, or possibly a Chaos Spawn, (laughs) depending (laughs) on how fortunate or unfortunate he was. It would just be such an epic finale to a a campaign, Mm. wouldn't it? Yeah, so I've written here that the general overarching narrative of this mission is this is the final battle to decide the fate of a world like both forces are fully committed to this final desperate battle both on the ground and in orbit above the planet as the battle rages around them the warlords of each army are engaged in an epic duel to the death now like i say originally that's abaddon versus calga but this could just be between any warlords so to sort of break down a bit of the nitty-gritty of how this scenario actually plays out. Uh, the battlefield is set up to represent a heavily war-torn battlescape. So imagine anything you've seen in like, you know, the Dawn of War games or 
in big epic set pieces like uh, Warhammer World or other like gaming conventions or whatever, where you just imagine a big climactic conflict happening in some war-torn city or battle zone that war's been raging in for a long time, that sort of thing. Ruins, craters, destruction, downed titans, if you're playing in Nottingham, <laughs> you know, whichever. Um, just some sort of real set-piece battlefield. And then, funnily enough, whilst that is all very much this big sort of epic setup, the actual deployment for the mission is pretty straightforward 40k. It's a sort of like standard attacker and defender roles, the classic like dawn of war deployment. So you're sort of 12 inches in from a long table edge and you're, you're 24 inches of no man's land in between. Two things that sort of diverge from that and make this scenario a little different and interesting is that there are six objective markers and they are set up sort of like equidistant more or less along the deployment edge of both players deployment zones so that 12 inch line basically has one of objective marker in the center of it and then two that are like 12 inches in from the two short table edges so both players have a line of three objective markers along the front of their deployment. Um, and these are numbered one through three for the attacker and four through six for the defender. Now I say they're objective markers. It's more just the easiest way to sort of pass how they behave in the mission. They're actually not used to determine victory in this mission. They're used for a sort of like a, a battlefield effect, but they're there, they're static and they represent sort of basically dividing up areas of the battlefield where mayhem may ensue as we will get to. <laughs> the second change to the standard setup and deployment is what is this core mechanic of this mission? The duel. So the duel zone is a three inch radius zone at the very center of the battlefield. So you're thinking this sort of like, you know, little six inch across bubble dead center and both warlords from each side are set up within this dual zone within engagement range of each other now as this is an eighth edition scenario it technically specifies itself within an inch of each other which was engagement range in eighth so I think yeah, just call it engagement range, you know, set up within half an inch of each other. Now they're basically meant to be preemptively already in battle with each other, already having a fight. Now, warlords cannot move outside of this dual zone and they cannot target units outside of the dual zone. Basically, nothing outside exists to them. They're just busy focused on each other and the battle at hand between the two of them. Equally, Nothing on the outside of the dual zone can basically interfere with the warlords. So nothing outside can enter or move over the dual zone. Um, it blocks line of sight. Um, it's considered to be like infinitely high. Units outside of the dual zone cannot target units inside the dual zone, and you can't target things over it because it blocks line of sight. You know, so there's literally nothing is interfering with these two warlords having their honor duel. However, this dual zone does cease to exist if one of the warlords is slain. 
So once there is a clear victor, one of their opponents has been defeated. This sort of like reverts to standard battlefield procedure. But I mean, I'm sure we've all seen plenty of films and similar where two champions from either army meet on the battle to have this like you know um, honor duel to decide the fate um, of the forces involved. It's that sort of thing, you know. The two champions are dueling, and no one is going to interfere. It's giving me really cool like visuals. <laughs> it I does, doesn't it? Yeah, I can imagine like creating a piece, like a terrain piece as well for them to be fighting on, like a sort of a six-inch yeah, I... sort of plinth for them to be fighting on. Uh, now you've said that, I've immediately got images of using the um, the Citadel Temple of Skulls. Yeah, to I've got the especially if this is a scenario where it's like Calga versus Abaddon, you know, um, where the two of them are standing on the top of that plinth, basically dueling. Yeah, that would be amazing. And it does the blocking line of sight. It does everything you need it to do. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out that just because the two wards start in engagement range, it doesn't mean they're not able to disengage or fall back. So, for example, (laughs) if you're a Tau player and your Battlesuit commander is starting in engagement range against whatever opponent, he's probably going to want to disengage where he can. He, you know, he'll probably be taking some Overwatch shots when he inevitably gets recharged. But it's not all doom and gloom for Tau, as we will get to in a little bit. Just because he but, can't leave the three-inch radius doesn't mean that he always has to stay in fighting. Yes. So dependent on who you are and what you're doing, you know, disengaging, using psychic powers, all of that is pretty much still game. It's just that the only focus of your attention is this one enemy warlord. Um, Whilst technically it doesn't specify you couldn't, say, use powers to buff people in or out of the circle variously, the only reason I think they don't specify that is because this scenario is created for two non-psychic combatants. You know? Yeah. So I think you would have to just use that as well, like no interfering of any kind. However, one of the main gimmicks that makes this work is the fact that in this scenario, both warlords are considered to have a wounds value of 25 wounds. Amazing. As opposed to your usual seven or eight or whatever it is, Kalga and Abaddon have, you know, or whatever HQ you're using, because it's meant to really create this idea that they're having a proper duel. They're not just whoever strikes first happens to smack someone else over the head with their damage six weapon, (laughs) or, you know, hit them three times with their D six damage. Oh, look, I killed you. No, they're meant to be properly trading blows, causing, you know, ablative wounds on each other, um, slowly whittling down their opponent's defense. And even a badden would be hard-pressed to score 25 wounds on Calgary in one round. Yeah, it's going to last the battle. It's going to be an epic fight happening whilst the fight's happening around them. So yeah, you know, 25 wounds makes whatever conflict you've got going on between your you know, heroes an actual proper conflict that is going to last probably at least two to three rounds so the majority of the game they will spend dueling with each other easily and i think because some of their weapons can be so swingy it's like it it's really it's not going to be as you say first turn 
you're going to lose your warlords. Like it, they are going to be battling, and it is potentially like it's it's it, who it's anybody's game. Yes. Now it is worth noting that both the intended characters for this scenario, Calgar and Abaddon, they actually both have a rule where they take half damage. So I don't know how baked in that is to the scenario. I've not had a chance to play it myself. So I don't know if, say, you were doing this with a regular Space Marine Captain and a regular Chaos Lord. I say regular, but, you know, your variously legendary tiered ones of yeah. traits and all the rest of it from your Crusaded. Maybe try bumping them to 30 wounds or maybe even 35. You know, something to sort of just really let them hack chunks out of each other. We'll give uh, them the same rule, potentially. Yeah, or even that. Yeah. You know, duelists take half damage because they're busy dueling their own guard or whatever. That could be one way of doing it. Be interesting though, with all of the various buffs that you're going to get through your crusade, how uh, how it will play out. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Um, I mean, I think the whole point of this is like the, the spectacle of this game really is the duel. It's not the battle happening around. That's almost no. like extra. Um, so make it as you know worthwhile as possible you don't want it to be over after just one or even two rounds of combat really um and you can always like it. tweak it slightly as well i was just thinking then maybe um just leave it up until when the warlord dies and that's the victory condition and the army the the defend the defeat the defeated warlord's army is then broken and uh, yeah i mean it's funny okay. uh, the actual victory condition for this mission basically just uses old style victory points. So, you know, whoever has the most surviving slash whoever's destroyed the most of their opponent's army value um, is deemed the winner. And the outcome of the duel determines um, whether or not you get a minor or major victory. So if you won the battle, but you lost the duel, you have a minor victory. If you won the battle and the duel, you have a major. And in the case yeah. of a um, in the case of a draw, the winner of the duel wins the mission. And if you, um, I think it's if you win the battle but lose the duel, you obviously you only get a minor victory, sort sure. of thing. Um, I'm tempted to say throw it out the window and just have yeah. whoever wins the duel be the um the winner of the game maybe uh, revert it so if you win the duel you win a minor victory if you win the duel and you scored the most victory points you win a major victory yeah that sounds good to me um it does kind of make it all revolve around the duel i think that would be really cool for a crusade yeah so i think maybe that might be one tweak i'd suggest uh one other thing is that technically as written, um, nothing changes about the Warlord's wound trait after the duel. So say you had, you know, your Abaddon who's killed Kalga and he's got 12 wounds remaining after the duel. <laughs> technically now he's a character with 12 wounds, so he can be targetable. Or a monster. Or if you've got a... Uh, if it's Kalgar and you've got an apothecary nearby, 
Yeah, I mean, I think what I would suggest is that if you win the duel and you have, um, if you have more than, if you have 10 or more wounds remaining, um, revert to the standard wounds characteristic for that character. I think that's um, fair, isn't it? If obviously you win the duel and you come out with it barely alive on like three or two wounds or something, just stay at the two or three wounds. You know, you've just come out of that duel, you're going to be worse for wear. But I think just reverting down to the base original wounds after a victory, just to avoid then getting sniped by a squad of last cannons or similar, just because yeah. you've got <laughs> over 10 wounds. And you're in the middle uh, of the battlefield. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Or maybe. Out front. <laughs> Or maybe another way of doing it, if you really want, um, you stay on however wound, how many other wounds you have remaining, be it you know, 10, 12, 15, 20, whatever. You know, if you've really somehow just miraculously pulled a perfect victory <laughs> off over your dueling opponent. Um, but then just say that they're untargetable unless they're the closest enemy model. Yeah. Let, let them stride around the battlefield as the god of war they've just proven themselves to be. <laughs> They deserve it. Mm-hmm. I think realistically, um, you're going to be on a good... You're probably not, unless you roll really hot, you're probably going to be on at least turn four or five by the time the duel's over. I would have thought. Yeah, and I think you will probably be on less than ten wounds. Yeah. Like, even uh, even if the duel goes relatively well, I think you'll be on nine or less <laughs> wounds by the end of it. I would have thought so. Um, so yeah, so there's a little more to touch on with the dueling mechanic in terms of the stratagems available in this mission, but we'll get to those in a little bit just after we've finished explaining the sort of premise of the mission. So um, then just sort of going through the other nuts and bolts of how you set up the game. Um, this is a mission where starting with the defender, players alternate setting up units until they're fully deployed, um, players roll off for the first turn, um, again, feel free to apply your modern day ninth edition iteration where if you win the roll, you go first. If you don't, you go second as opposed to picking. Feel free. Um, the mission uses random game length. So I think even though ninth is sort of tended towards more the set five turns, I think this is a mission where the random game length could really actually make it feel more characterful because say the duel is still going on on turn five if there's that chance to push into turn six and seven just to get that last edging out of the duel, I mean, I think it'd feel a bit anticlimactic, really, if you didn't end up with a victor by the end of it. Yeah, well, can you imagine if you both down to, like, two wounds each and you just need that last round just to decide? I'd probably just fight it. I think if you got to... I would. I totally would. ...six and the duel was still ongoing, I think you should automatically go to turn six. And then the same is true of turn seven. And then if you get to the end of turn seven of the battle and somehow you still don't have a Warlord Victor, I'd maybe say just keep playing turns just of the Warlords until the duel is concluded. I think you need to find out, don't you? After all of that crusade, you need to know whose champion is the (laughs) champion champion? of the crusade. Um, and then the last sort of um, rule that's baked into this scenario is almost um, a uh, it's like a mini theatre of war, which is the uh, reign of devastation rule. So this is where those six air quotes objective markers come into play. <laughs> so this is meant to represent the fact that obviously this um, 
you know, epic duel is happening because it's the climax of a, a war effort. You know, there's a, a big old battle going on around these two. Even if the focus is kind of on the duel, there's still a big old conflict going on. So there's meant to be you know, battles between ships in orbit. There's artillery going off all over the place. There's huge, you know, all remaining forces of both armies are committed to this battle. And as a result, there's a lot of destruction sort of just indiscriminately blasting its way around the battlefield. You know, it could be Titans, Titan weaponry firing from off field. It could be debris falling from space as spaceships get shot down, anything really. And how that's represented is at the start of each battle round, um, the attacker, or realistically either player, doesn't really matter, uh, rolls a d6 and uh, consults the table below. On a one, there is a brief moment of silence in the battle, and nothing happens, or at least nothing more so than usual gunfire and battling and jewels and blades. I think that that tense moment in you know the cinematic duel where the champions have crossed blades and they briefly get a moment to exchange a word before they uh, go back to swinging at each other. Yeah, I can see that. On a two to three, there is a rain of debris from the orbital battle above, and you roll a d6 for each objective marker. On a roll of on a roll of one, each unit within d6 inches of that objective marker suffers d3 mortal wounds. So you know one of these six sort of locations on the battlefield is where a big chunk of falling spaceship has landed, and explosions have gone off, and people have to get out of the way, or at least they be crushed. <laughs> On four to five, there is some stray ordnance. So again, Titan weapons, artillery, whatever, just you know, firing indiscriminately into the battlefield. Roll a d6. Each unit within three inches of that objective marker uh, suffers d3 mortal wounds. So this time, rather than rolling once per marker to see if it's hit, it's just the marker guarantees hitting everything around it. Wow. So, you know, Rain of Death could result in nothing or could end up with a few sporadic mortal wounds across the whole battlefield. This one is like one of these six locations has just been bombed by something significant <laughs> and everything nearby has been, you know, blown apart. And on a six, there is a cataclysmic descent. Now, I think this kind of represents the idea of a full-on battleship is just crashing to the planet or the fortification that you're fighting on or around has just suffered cataclysmic structural damage now the whole fortress is like collapsing or falling in on itself or something you know like just real you know earth shattering destruction and impact trauma this is, yeah, every unit on the battlefield, except the Warlords, again, no one interferes, not even fate. Oh my God. Uh, every unit on the battlefield <laughs> suffers D3 mortal wounds. Everyone gets smited. That is brutal, isn't it? It is, especially when there isn't even a distinction between character and non-character units. This is often the case with these sort of like splash damage mortal wounds. Yeah, definitely. And after, like after the battle's been going on for a little while, there's, that's probably going to be very impactful for those characters that have had suffered a couple of mortal wounds already. 
Yeah. And um, and that that's kind of the whole gist of this larger ongoing conflict, and that's the whole purpose of these objective markers. It's really just to make sure that this, air quotes, random splash damage effect isn't going to affect the warlords because it's only yeah. going to be hitting areas of radius around these markers and with the warlords being in the center of the battlefield, they're exempt from, well, you know, anything untoward happening to them unless it's to each other. They're having their epic fight on top of this building and everything's happening around them. But yeah. nothing ever knocks the building down, does it? Not until the end. No, not not until a crucial moment where possibly one of the duelists has to survive the otherwise killing blow just as the ground breaks apart. <laughs> they are indefinitely separated. However, there is, with all these um, Echoes of War missions, there's a selection of unique scenario stratagems available to both the attacker and defender. And I actually think this is a even more unique scenario where I don't think either of them, I don't think either of the attacker or defender stratagems actually really have to be tied to the attacker or defender. And I think, I mean, we'll sort of get into it, but basically all these stratagems relate to things that the warlords in the duel can do. So as written, there's three stratagems the warlord of the attacking player can do and three stratagems that the defending player can do. With the exception of one of them, which I'll get to, the other five, I honestly don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't all be available to both players. And I actually think it'd create another level of tactical nuance with these command points. Yeah, I think so. So just to go through them all one by one, so the first is the point-blank burst for one CP. Now, this is where I was saying that there is things to even allow for, like, tower battlesuit commanders and stuff to still get involved, you know, in this kind of dueling scenario. So for one CP, use this stratagem at the start of your shooting phase. Until the end of the phase, your warlord's ranged weapons have the pistol type instead of their normal type, e.g. Rapid Fire 2 becomes Pistol 2. Um, in addition, until the end of the phase, your warlord can only target the enemy warlord with their attacks. So basically, for one CP, you can shoot the opponent in the duel. Sounds reasonable. Which, you know, let's say, Tower Commanders pop out your Fusion Blaster, your um, Azrael can fire away with his Lion's Wrath. Um, anything, really. Even things like... Um, Heron Blackheart can unleash his, uh, you know, heavy flamer on so on. Again, sort of things you do see in these cinematic moments of, you know, trying to <laughs> catch someone with your firearm, even though you're right on top of them. Yeah, they will be. They will be doing that, won't they? There will be times when they both do that sort of crossed blades and push each other back, and then have a pop with your gun up. whilst you're running in. Yeah, Kalga swings up with his um, his fist of Ultramar and lets loose a volley, or uh, yeah. Abaddon returns fire with a Talon of Horus. So I think it's really cool that they, you know, there's that ability to bring ranged weapons to bear in this otherwise combat scenario duel. Um, then we have for free CP, Righteous Fury. 
Use a stratagem uh, when you pick your warlord to fight with in the fight phase. Until the end of the phase, you can re-roll wound rolls for attacks made by your warlord that target the enemy warlord. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it specifically to... Yeah, that could be either, easily. Yeah, again, it could be either, it could be any warlord. This is just free CP to really push the advantage. Maybe if you think this is a turn where you could possibly... You know, catch the opponent and get them down to zero wounds. Free CP investment to reroll wounds. It's critical to win the mission. Get some righteous fury going. Definitely. <laughs> but then, equally, for two CP, you could use powered guard. Use the stratagem at the start of the fight phase. The players roll off. If you win the roll off, your opponent must reroll successful hit rolls for attacks made by their warlord that target your warlord. Cheeky. So that's the whole, you know, setting to a defensive stance and, you know, parrying away blows or revealing that little sneaky trick they've got with a force field or something that you didn't know they had. You know, it could be anything. Could be a like, a, like paralyzing their opponent's grip or that moment where they're, you know, trying to force that um, blade from to not fall on them. They're holding it back. Yeah, I like it. And again, not tied really to either attacker or defender. No, not too. Then, uh, this one is tied a little bit in name to Abaddon, but mechanically it's not. This is free CP. 10,000 years of hatred. <laughs> Which arguably could also be true of a Necron. <laughs> or, or some other long-lived races, even Eldar. Um, use a stratagem when you pick your warlord to fight with in the fight phase. Until the end of the phase, you can re-roll wound rolls for attacks made by your warlord that target the enemy warlord. So it's basically just Righteous Fury again. You know, but this is an example of why I think both people should have access to these. Yeah, it seems... Yeah. It's a repeat because the idea is both players were intended to be able to do that. So why not just make all the stratagems be an option? And then the second um, chaos stratagem, as it were, again, very bad in name, but not too bad in mechanic-wise, is Taming Drachnian. So basically making even better use of the particular demon weapon he's got, or as I would think, just really showing expertise with whatever weapon of choice your warlord uses. Use this stratagem when you pick your warlord to fight in the fight phase. Roll a d3 and add the result to your warlord's attacks characteristic until the end of the phase. In addition, if the result is a 1, your warlord suffers one mortal wound. Interesting that you've yeah, interesting that you've got that potential for it to bite you back. Yeah, Most so obviously it's meant to be because it's basically trying to push a bit more out of the demon weapon bonus. A couple more attacks, but also that additional chance to hurt yourself because you're wielding a demon weapon. But, but I, can I think see it. I can see it like re- being you're sort of doing that little show offy move, and you might you might bugger it up and drop your weapon or something. And just overexerting, you know, just whatever it is, you know, yeah. maybe it's the thing where um, in order to get a, an attack of opportunity, you you end up grabbing your opponent's blade with your hand or yeah. something. I mean, you, you get a moment of opportunity, um, but you've also had to, you know, you've had to give way a little bit and you've had to, you know, take a little bit of harm in order to create that opportunity for extra attack. 
So again, it's not really tied to either of them. Any warlord in any duel, I think, could use that. Definitely, yeah. Now, the last one of the unique stratagems is called Dark Resurrection, but I basically would like to think of this as the not dead yet stratagem. <laughs> Again, and many a film and, and you know epic battle has one opponent seemingly been defeated, only to rise again at the last moment to have one last um, claw at victory or to turn on their opponent. So this is one which is intended to obviously be exclusively available to Abaddon, which I think already tells you which way Games Workshop was um, siding with how this duel is supposed to go. <laughs> um, but use this stratagem when your warlord is slain. Do not remove your warlord from play. Instead, the players roll off. If you win the roll off, your warlord regains wounds until their remaining wounds are equal to the number you rolled in the roll off. The enemy warlord cannot make any further attacks in this phase. If you lose the roll off, your warlord is removed from play as normal. So this, yeah, I can see both units in that as well, but maybe just limit it to once. That is exactly what I was going to suggest. (laughs) I think this would be really cool to allow it as an option for both players. But it's one use per game, per not even not even per player. Even it's one use for the game. Like the yeah. first person to use it um, uses it, and that's it. I mean, it's a free CP investment, which requires a roll off with your opponent to do anything. So, you know, it's quite a bit to bang. You know, it's quite a lot of CP to invest in what could come out as being no effect but if if you've been downed and you've got that free cp left to try and get back on your feet especially if you're playing it where the duel is going to be the deciding factor of the game there's even a debate for you know are you wanting to try and get your warlord killed first so that you can be the one that uses the stratagem and not your opponent (laughs) But then it's a roll-off as to whether or not you're going to actually get anything out of it. But I can see that being I, such a cool comeback moment, like especially if you're both down to very little, very few wounds, and you coming back and managing to win the roll-off and managing to come back with one wound just to then fight and kill the enemy would be so cool. Yeah, it would. I mean, especially if, say, the reason why you got killed was because your opponent did a point-blank volley and they uh, they blitzed you away with a ranged attack, only for you to just stand up again and charge them for, the, you know, that final retaliation. Yeah. Like, it, it is unusual how I think that would work best with a little bit of a house rule. I mean, as written, three of those traps are attacker only, three are defender only, so it's sort of it solidifies it as being in the realm of the defender. But I think you should make all the other five stratagems available to both players. And this one is available to both, but only one person gets to use it. And once it's been used, it's been used. It made you think very carefully about keeping that three CP left over. Definitely. But like, like I say, I think it really would create that sense of dramatic last-ditch effort. 
it's you know the last wound of the last battle of the last part of the campaign can your warlord pull it back to just you know claim victory from the jaws of defeat yeah it's a proper movie moment isn't it yeah which to set yourself up for the end of a a long ongoing crusade what could be better that that is the the core of the mission that that's basically sort of everything we've covered as is um and there's not much more to sort of discuss really because it's just that's what it is it's it's this epic duel between two you know mighty heroes and to do it with your own heroes that have clawed their way up the ranks and you know fought their campaigns and gained their battle honors i just think it'd be really cool for anyone to play out as towards the end of their crusade yeah you've definitely given me the uh itch to want to play a game now i mean i did think about a few other things that you could do to tweak it or adjust it depending on you know what's involved so for example one of the key things if you're going to take this mission and adjust it for uh, non-traditional warlords i'm thinking things like your monster class duels so things like if you're playing Imperial Knights or Chaos Knights and your Warlord is a Knight, you know, or if you're playing um, Tyranids and your Warlord is a Hive Tyrant or Demons and it's a Greater Demon. Mm. Like if you're going to have, I, I mean, I think you would really kind of want both combatants to be on par. As cool as it would look to have a Space Marine Captain fighting a Bloodthirster in this dual scenario, I don't quite see a way of evenly balancing it. No, maybe play around with wounds characteristics a bit, but a bit. But then, is it fair or unfair to give the captain triple wounds to be on par with Budfirster, but yeah. not give Budfirster more wounds? Who knows? But I think sort of a, a, it would work best. Yeah, as you say, either with matched or like like with an infantry character, or if you both had something pretty huge. I think, yeah, I think it would be a lot easier and a, probably a lot fairer to try and bring a Hive Tyrant and a Greater Demon to an on-par situation, you know, to sort of, like, is it play around with wounds a little bit? Certainly, if you're having a Knight Duel, like Imperial versus Chaos Knight, you're going to have to increase your Duel Zone to, like, a 12-inch radius. <laughs> <laughs> You know, something where there's actually the ability to disengage if they so choose, um, but still enough that they can circle each other a little bit. So, like you said, maybe you consider doubling or tripling the wounds of whatever particular thing it is you're fighting with. Knights normally have 24 wounds, so maybe have a, a knight duel where they both have 50. Just tearing chunks out of each other for the whole game. Yeah. I mean, two knights that are engaged over three, four, five rounds of a game, they are going to do 50 wounds to each other throughout, especially when you start making use of things like those stratagems. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the other sort of thing that I thought you could do to sort of play around with was ways of tweaking or adjusting the whole dueling area mechanic. So, for example, one thing that came to mind for me was if you used something such as a battle zone or a theater of war that somehow affects the play space, 
and allowing it to warp or manipulate the dueling area. So we mentioned earlier the geothermal eruption. Well, maybe, maybe you could play where rather than the geothermal um, like lava flow spreading from one table edge to the other, you could have it starting on the outer edge of the dueling ring and expanding out across the field away from the warlords. So they're busy fighting on this, you know, platform or floating rock or whatever in the middle of the lava field whilst it's slowly forcing the forces around them further away. That would be cool. Very sort of Obi-Wan and Anakin-esque. Yeah. Um, or equally, you could play something such as the um, the Flashpoint Argavon theater of war we mentioned last episode where there's the fissures in the earth that are opening up throughout the game if you've got those six uh, markers across the board to indicate where new cracks in the earth are opening there's a good chance at some point some of them might cross the dueling zone and ultimately all that's going to do is create a moment where there might be a couple of mortal wounds dished out on the warlords but i could see that being a thing in a, a fight, you know, if the earth cracks underfoot and one of them stumbles in that moment, it might not be what gets them killed, but it might be what gives the opponent the opportunity to, you know, get strike a, a telling blow, you know, past their armor or something. Yeah, I like it. There's plenty of stuff. Cool. I mean, I'm thinking about um, if you're doing this duel where you've got two psychic opponents, you know, you could just imagine a Grey Knight Grandmaster fighting a thousand sun sorcerer and they've got this psychic element to their conflict as well or maybe if you imagine that as a battlefield grey knight grandmaster thousand sun sorcerer of course there's going to be some sort of like maelstrom of psychic energy flying around them as they're having their epic duel to the death yeah maybe. because like if anyone gets a like a double six perils they could dish mortal wounds to someone in a surrounding area or something. That'd be kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I was thinking you could use the Deadly Storm Theater of War from Vigilus Ablaze, actually, I think it is, um, where traditionally the board is divided into six battle zone segments, a bit like you know the, the Realm of Battle boards. Hmm. Um, in every game round, the storm occupies one of those spaces, and it's supposed, it's supposed to move around, and if anyone is in the storm area, um, they suffer things like mortal wounds, reduced movement, obscured line of sight, all the rest of it. Maybe you could take that mechanic, but rather than have it be in a single board section, you have it act as a 12-inch radius around the dual area, because that is the psychic maelstrom that's forming around these combatants. And it, it doesn't move, but it stays there until the dual is won. Yeah, that would be very cool. There's, there's like all sorts you could do with it. Just, I was just thinking, whatever... of like the um, where you get the epic fights where they're literally throwing themselves around the battlefield. You could have a uh, scatter dice and be moving the uh, the jewel zone around the battlefield as they're fighting and throwing each other around. Oh, of... that's cool. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you're right. If every Every round you roll the scatter dice and say, uh, even 2d6 probably. Yeah. You know, to determine a random direction. And they just uh, sort of barge people out of the way <laughs> as they're going through. Like, if they come through, if they move through any units, 
uh, those units have to move minimum amount to uh, be over an inch away of them. But all units that are forced to move suffer D3 mortal wounds. As as a warlord crashes through them. Yeah, that would actually be pretty cool. That, I think, would work really well for something like a Hive Tyrant versus Demon Prince or something. Something with a bit of weight to it, you know, a bit of mass. They're properly, like, grappling each other and, yeah. Throwing each other around, yeah, that'd be cool. I like that. That's a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that is... That is Demise of a Legend, the Echo of War mission from Vigilus Ablaze. And if any of you out there listening, you know, have an ongoing crusade, I highly advise giving this a go as a sort of like a concluding game. I mean, you could arguably do it as a bit of a milestone game. Like if you know you're going to have a month on, then a month off, then a month on, maybe at the end of that first month, you have a dual mission between your commanders as they are, and then maybe the end of the second month when you're concluding you have it again and maybe you see how the individuals have uh, you know changed or adopted who won first time would they win again yeah would you if you knew that was coming would you look at different uh, uh, battle honors and stuff that are more melee focused and try and tailor your warlord to he's learned from his last fight and he's gonna come back it could even be something as simple as if you were leading up to a big like club battle, say at the end of a campaign where everyone, you know, all the players are getting involved in a big multiplayer game. If the week before you had various players from both sides pair up and run this mission, if a warlord got killed, they got killed at that point. Like you know, there there's been a loss of leader. You know, part of the command has been killed and assassinated before the big engagement and actually that could lead to some interesting situations where you've got one side that might be suffering because it hasn't got as many warlords as the other you know but that could really drive home that point that you know this is the end for them it's really not going well they might pull out a you know a miraculous victory but their commander has been martyred in the process yeah that sounds very cool. Or you could have multiple dual zones. Oh, it's getting complicated now, probably. <laughs> I'm thinking of having the, the captains having a dual zone and the lieutenants having a dual zone. <laughs> just jewels everywhere. Just jewels. Just craziness. Well, um, yeah, I think that's that's basically everything for uh, this episode. It's been It's been a big one, but it's been a really good one. So just before we head off, we will quickly cover our uh, one or two community spotlights. Now, before I forget, Adam, please tell us where people can find you over on socials because we've talked about some of the great things that you've been doing and you know some of the really cool models you've got and tutorials you've been putting out there. So I realized that, you know, this far into the show we haven't even actually really pointed out where people can come find you other than our you know facebook group so please tell the good people um i post most things on instagram at uh at boise 40k um and yeah in the facebook group as well go go check him out because it's really good i mean anything from your your basing tutorials through to your customly handcrafted chaos spawns 
There's a bunch of interesting things that you've done. Thank you. Um, and then, how about yourself? Any particular shout-outs you would like to um, let the people know about? Um, so, uh, one, I remember seeing this guy in a battle report on Play on Tabletop ages ago, and I've just been following him ever since because it's such a cool idea. He's got a, um, a grot guard, Imperial Guard Army made out of grots, and he's <laughs> called Heaven's Teeth on Instagram. And he's done some amazing conversion work. So it's like a full um, Gretchen Rebellion force, is it, or something? Yeah. Is, it, is it like Red like, Gobo and similar? Yeah, they're all stand on each other's shoulders with the... Um, oh, I forgot what his name is. The Tempest, uh, big coat over their shoulders, and there's two grots standing on each other's shoulders. <laughs> uh, <it's> very cool. <laughs> I'll check that out. Uh, like hanging out of the guns of Lehman Russes. <laughs> cool. And um, then it looks like you've got another shout-out uh, here. The second one is my wife. She's, uh, she's joined me on the Warhammer um, bandwagon. And uh, her Instagram, she tries to paint dogs and uh, <laughs> give her a folly. Uh, she's she's started collecting space wolves and they're looking really good, if I do say so myself. Right, I was going to say, so like her Instagram handle is at she tries to paint dogs. Yes. <laughs> and she collects space wolves, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah um I'll, i'd love to get her added as well and start following what she's um painting as well because it'd be interesting to see how her, her space will fare up against your gene stealer cult let's see um who gets to 5k first <laughs> <laughs> she's going really well at the moment uh, so we'll have to see um but yeah it'd be good i'm hoping that at some point we can play a crusade game together and we can uh, share some of what's going on um, and then one last um, spot, well, one last shout out for me is uh, a new is it like YouTube battle report channel called Rogue Dice. Um, I've actually been following them, and they are they've just started in sort of like the last month, two months. So they are a relatively new channel, but they're they're already doing really well and have a good spirit to them, and I really like um, the sort of just character that they bring to it. And I've started following them because actually they're based very locally to me. And I know that the main um, sort of guy that runs it, Kyle, um, he's actually someone who's a local player in my local area. Um, And I've been chatting with him a little bit since he started up the channel and they're just good. They're off to a really good start. Um, And they don't just exclusively do 40k content either. They've also got sort of like a general um, hobbies and geeking podcast, um, like a couple of episodes of that. And I think they're planning to do a little bit of Magic the Gathering coverage as well. Um, but yeah, like they're a brand new channel. So if you want to, you know, give them a try, that's uh, Rogue Dice on YouTube. And see, so you might just get in early doors with them and uh, sort of see how they develop. Because I always think it's really interesting to see how some of these channels start out you know like and how they grow from the players and the sort of setups they begin with through to becoming you know the tabletop tactics and the mini wargamings of the world yeah i'm always on the lookout for a new uh 
new channel to watch on YouTube. I like that they're doing um, different sizes of battles as well. It's not just 2,000 points match play. They've, they've got a few 1,000 points and 1,500 points in there, which is nice. Yeah, they even did a game um, this month using the Open War cards from Ninefed, oh, which brilliant. I just had to give those some credit for because I do not see them used enough and I would love to see more uh, games played using the Open War cards. No, I'm really looking forward to using them. Um, so, yeah. I think that's that's kind of everything. So thank you, Adam, for coming and you know joining me on the show for the first time. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Well, let's say hopefully we'll have you back on again in the future. Um, maybe not for Death Guard coverage next time, but no doubt for something. <laughs> yeah, looking forward and, to it. Uh, yeah, and hopefully um, I'll be getting hold of someone in our community to probably talk Dark Angels on Crusade, possibly Drakari on Crusade um, and all those moving forwards. I mean, I probably won't need to get hold of anyone for Orcs on Crusade whenever it eventually happens. But, you should have that um, one covered, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But yeah, I'm, looking, I'm really looking forward to doing more of the Crusade segments. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it was really um, fun. It'll be interesting to see when the next one drops into the schedule. I don't know if it'll be next episode, but it might be the one after. We'll see. But in any case, I'll say I've kind of got a, a packed schedule of stuff now, so I'm looking forward to all the upcoming shows. So yeah, um, until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you discover more ways to play 40k.